Friends, a very blessed morning to all of you. I'm so glad to be able to see so many of you, uh, even though it's only half of your face. <laughs> and you never really know how important the second half of the face is until you see somebody randomly in a shopping mall and then you struggle to realise, is, is that that person who I'm thinking of? I tell you, throughout the pandemic, I've been experiencing this over and over again. Um, every time I go to a shopping mall, I see somebody who looks like somebody that I recognize, but cannot be because I know them from JB, or I know them from Ampang, but I only see the first top of their, 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 the top half of their face. Then I went to KL, and randomly in the shopping mall, we met people from JB. So maybe those were people who I knew. <laughs> Okay, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this morning and we just want to thank you, Lord, that you give us opportunity to not just meet together to praise and worship you, but to also learn from you, to listen to your word for us. And so, Father, I pray that even in the attitude of which we listen and the words in which I speak, Lord, may we bring glory to your name in our posture of speaking and listening. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh. No, everything's on. Okay, if you cannot get signal from here, just use the backup slides. Huh? Okay, let's continue. Huh? Okay, how many of you travelled out of Penang over the Chinese New Holidays? Any of you left Penang? Okay, quite a mess exodus. Huh? Alright, I went back to KL, as I mentioned just now. KL is my hometown. I haven't been back for two years, okay, since the, the I think in 20... 20, that, that was the one that I went back. Now, as usual, whenever I head back to KL, ah, thank you, thank you so much, wonderful job. Okay, whenever I head back to KL, uh, something would have changed. I don't know if any, any of you from KL? No, lah? Okay, yeah, Connie. <laughs> yeah, every time you head back to KL, something would have changed, whether it's the, the roads or the traffic flow, or some massive project is being built somewhere so that the detours, uh, or maybe even buildings are torn down, uh, replaced with newer buildings, the skyline. I used to stay near KLCC, and I, I went back and I cannot recognize the surroundings. Everything is different. But especially the roads, the roads in, uh, the, the roads in, in KL, they are ever-changing and they are a nightmare to navigate without ways if you're from out of town. I remember during one of my trips back, uh, a couple of years back, I was going to visit my sister, and right next to the turn off to my sister's place, there's a turning that leads onto a highway. And this is a special highway, okay, because it's almost like an express highway from that stretches uh, one end of the city all the way to the airport. Okay, for those of you who know, it's called the Maju Expressway, M-E-X, okay? And so this is almost one hour from my sister's place, that turn off, all the way to the airport. 
And the earliest possible time that you can turn off that highway to get off it is near Putrajaya. And that takes almost an hour to reach. Okay? So, can you guess what happened? <laughs> I turned off this highway by mistake. Okay? And as I drove further and further, I, I grew to despair more and more. I felt my heart getting heavier and heavier. And everything is all tense and... Because I knew not only was I going to be late, at, uh, I, I told my sister I'd be there at a certain time, not only am I going to be late, I'm also going to be wasting almost a total of two hours just because of this wrong turn. I'm going to be wasting a lot of petrol, about half a tank of petrol uh, on a, a Proton Persona back then I was driving. And I had no idea how long this highway would stretch on. But when I finally found a place where I could turn off, basically to make a U-turn, hit back in the other direction, it was such a relief, right? Because now I knew I was going in the right direction, even if it was still a long and anxious journey back. Now, the past few weeks, we've been going through some of Israel's darkest moments. And today, today's passage is a turning point of sorts for them. And just like how it was a painful journey for me to make such a horrible wrong turn and head in the wrong direction for so long, it would have been a great relief for the people of Israel to finally U-turn and go back to the Lord. And so that's the big idea of today's sharing, that repentance leads to moments to remember, okay? So you forget everything. This is the one thing, the takeaway message to remember, that repentance leads to moments to remember. Now, up to this point, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel. We've only been looking at Samuel's parents, uh, Samuel as a little boy, and then everything else has been about Eli and his sons, about the Ark of God and about the Philistines. Today, we finally come to who the book is named after, okay? First Samuel as a grown-up man. And we see him leading Israel. Uh, the, the word actually used is judging, okay? But it means to lead. And so we're right at the end of the period of judges, and Saul, the first king of Israel, will soon be crowned, but not yet, okay? So we're some, somewhere between the end of judges and the beginning of the monarchy with King Saul. But before you know, the, the monarchy comes about, we see in today's passage a few important things that are happening. Okay, so let's look at them. Firstly, there's a commitment by the people of Israel to repent, or to put it another way, to U-turn back to the Lord. If you remember our summary from the book of Judges, it's a downward spiral, right, starting with the the Israelites straying away from God, disobeying His commands, breaking the covenant. And then God's judgment follows. He allows their enemies to overtake them, to oppress them. They cannot take it anymore. They finally turn to the Lord and they cry out for help. And then God raises up a judge, a leader of the nation to deliver them. Okay? And then they're rescued. They have peace in the land. And then they forget God and they sin again. And so the whole cycle repeats itself over and over again. And in this last cycle of oppression that's mentioned in Judges chapter 13, it's the Philistines who are the enemies of Israel, who are oppressing Israel. 
And so they've been oppressing Israel all this while. And so that's what uh, the first part of 1 Samuel is set in, this last cycle of oppression by the Philistines. And that has been going on for the last 40 years plus, maybe 40 to 70 years. But in today's passage, that oppression changes. About 20 years and seven months after the ark was captured, the people of Israel finally turned back to the Lord. And so just like how I felt that intense relief of being able to finally turn and head towards the right direction, this was what was happening for the people of Israel. The literal Hebrew word in verse 2 uh, for this turned back to the Lord is literally they lamented or they wailed before the Lord. And so what this means what, what it tells us is that something had driven them to lament. Okay, probably hardship from their oppression by the Philistines. Because the very nature of a lament is it's not a happy one. You know, it's not something that you're, you're feeling good and you decide, hey, I'm just going to start lamenting. No, you lament in response to something bad that's happening and it's an anguishing sort of, you know, uh, everything is horrible. And so... What that quickly tells us in how the, Israel, the Israelites lamented before God, what that tells us is that repentance doesn't always come voluntarily. You know, if you think that you're going to one day wake up and say, hmm, I think I'm feeling good, everything is going on in life as I planned, and nothing, you know, past few days have been great, I think I'm just going to repent and turn to the Lord. Um, that usually does not happen. In the case of the Israelites, it was consistently a response to hardship and trials and the circumstances surrounding repentance that, that made them, that drove them, that motivated them to repent. And so these circumstances are usually painful. They're usually unpleasant. And so just a very quick lesson for us that if you are in the midst of pain, if you're in the midst of hardship, and you ask God the million-dollar question, God, why is this happening to me? Maybe the answer may very well be in order to lead you to repentance. Not as a judgment or punishment, as is in terms of the Mosaic Covenant, which we are no longer under, but as something that God allows to remind us that we need to turn back to Him. Something that God allows to get our attention to know that we need Him. Just like the Israelites. In verse 3, Samuel tells them, okay, if you are serious about repentance, if you are serious about turning back to the Lord, then get rid of all these idols, all the, the idols that you have been serving and worshipping, commit to the Lord, serve Him only. Now, two things we can learn about repentance from this verse. Firstly, the get rid of those idols uh, is the same word in, so get rid is in verse 3 in the NIV. Verse 4, it says put away those idols. The, the, the Israelites put away their idols, right? Uh, these two words, get rid and put away, share the same Hebrew word which literally means to turn aside from, some, from something, okay? To turn aside from something, meaning 
to repent, okay, to turn away, to turn aside. And so this is an action that the Israelites needed to take to follow through on their lament in verse 2. It's not enough to just feel bad and cry out to the Lord. Repentance must bear the fruit of modified behavior, or else it's not repentance, it's just confession. Okay? When we feel bad, we're convic we convicted, uh, we cry out to the Lord, there must be a change of behavior that accompanies that, a turning away from sins, that is repentance. And also, turning aside and repenting from something isn't just putting that thing away for later. Okay, so in the case of the idols, Israel's idols, getting rid of their idols is not just putting it in a drawer or in a corner or burying it under their bed so that they can use it again at a later time. Turning aside means heading in a different direction. And so true repentance should bring us further and further away from sin because we are turning aside from it and heading in another direction. And so that's the first thing we can learn about repentance, this turning aside. Secondly, uh, commit yourselves to the Lord. When Samuel tells the, the Israelites to commit yourselves to the Lord, it's literally prepare or be firm in your hearts for the Lord. And so Samuel is telling the Israelites to not just put off their idolatry, not just turn aside from their sin, but to be totally devoted to the Lord instead. So not just to stop doing something bad, but to start doing what is good. Okay? And this reminds me of what Paul says uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. He tells the Ephesians and also the Colossians in chapter 3, in his letters to them, he tells them, uh, don't just take off the old self with its practices. Instead, what do you do? You replace it. You put on the new self with its virtues. And so true repentance isn't just about turning away from sin or idolatry. It's also turning back towards the Lord, turning to with, towards the Lord alone and nobody else. And so that's what the Israelites did. Samuel then tells them to assemble at Mizpah, where he would pray to God for them. In verse 6, after they assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and they poured it out before God. Then they fasted and confessed their sin. Some scholars think that this, this act of pouring water and fasting is somehow related to the requirements of uh, observing the Feast of the Tabernacles and the Day of Atonement, which is part of their, their, their Levitical sacrificial system. But others think that the water pouring is actually a symbolic gesture, okay? That when the people came together and then they poured water, uh, it was a symbolic, symbolic gesture to indicate weeping with repentance. Okay, so you imagine a whole bunch of people coming together feeling very sorry about what they have done, and then they take jugs of water and they pour. Uh, this represents our tears, something like that, okay? Uh, regardless of, of what that pouring of water was, it appears that the people of Israel really were turning back to the Lord, that they really were repenting of their sin. Now, here's a good spot to stop, to ponder, to reflect, 
and discuss our first question today. What are some things that should accompany a desire to repent? Okay, what are some things that should accompany a desire to repent? And for the kids, what should you do after you say sorry to someone? Okay, so for those of you who are, who are online, you're free to uh, discuss with one another. Those of you in person here, please maintain your social distancing. Just spend the time reflecting before the Lord and, and responding in however He leads you. Okay, we have two minutes to reflect. Can start the timer. Thank you. So Israel had assembled at Mizpah, they had repented before the Lord, but something happened shortly after that. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 7, when the Israelites assembled at Mizpah, the Philistines responded. They saw it, they saw them assembling, they took it as an act of revolt. Or rebellion because remember the Philistines have been oppressing the Israelites they were the ones in power and so when you have conquered these lands and this nation is allowed to exist under your authority you see them gathering in this one spot you know they, they would have thought they are going to rebel they are going to revolt they are going to fight back and so they came up to attack them not just with a small army but probably full force because the rulers are involved and so the philistines probably thought you know let's just go and teach these israelites a lesson let's crush them you know after all their last big battle 20 years ago they had totally decimated them uh, Thirty thousand israelites uh, israelite soldiers were killed and the ark of the covenant was taken right their their god and so the israelites thought 
you know, wet, wet water. We're going to, we're going to clean up these fellas. But let's just hang on a moment. Samuel was the one who told Israel to assemble at Mizpah. And Samuel, as a, as a prophet, uh, probably he was speaking at God's direction. And so why would God allow the Philistines to respond and come to attack them after Israel had already repented? Didn't he already get what he wanted in the sense that they had already turned back to him? Why allow further hardship, further threat of hardship to them? Well, Israel had already agreed to covenants and commitments before, uh, many times earlier, and they had totally gone back on them the moment there was the slightest sign of difficulty or trouble. And of course, you know, remember what they did when they, they were wondering, why is Moses taking so long after going up to meet the Lord on Mount Sinai? Is he okay? Has he been struck dead by God's holiness? What should we do? What did they do? They turned to idolatry. They made a golden calf. And this is after God had given them the Ten Commandments, okay? And the elders of Israel agreed to the covenant and said, yes, we will follow. We know that you don't want us to uh, make idols. Then shortly after, let's make an idol. Okay, and then remember what they did when the 12 spies scouted the promised land at Kadesh Barnea? Uh, ten spies brought a bad report. Only Joshua and Caleb brought a good report. And then they rebelled, right? The people of Israel rebelled against Moses. They said, let's go back to Egypt. Let's choose another leader, go back to Egypt. And so this would happen again and again and again and again. Each time the Israelites would commit to, to a covenant, they would say, yes, yes, we want to follow the Lord. Each time they would fail, they would confess and repent. And so now the Philistines were coming to attack all of Israel assembled at Mizpah at God's instruction. And so this was likely God testing their sincerity. Uh, just a quick reminder that throughout the Bible, every test from the Lord is always meant to prove something good. Okay? It's not meant to trip up people for failure. Okay, so tests from God are always good to prove the, 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 the value, the worth, the strength of something. In fact, we'll see later that this test doesn't just prove Israel's faithfulness to him, it proves his faithfulness towards them. Now friends, if there are times when repentance and committing yourself to the Lord to serve him seems to be answered by more challenges more hardship, then let that be a warning bell for you to stay the course, persevere, stay alert. Don't miss how God is going to work in you and around you. If you are right with God, trouble comes your way. Stay the course. Now, the Israelites respond the right way to this test, thankfully. Their response is to have faith in the promise that is made in verse 3, that God would deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. And so when the Philistines are coming to attack them, they are afraid. But they don't try anything else. They don't try to go and, 
you know, make, make some gods to save them. They don't try to make a treaty with uh, other nations to come and save them. They just trust God to save them. We don't know whether they had their weapons with them when they assembled, but they looked to God for salvation. And they proved their repentance through their faith in Him. And so Samuel offers a sacrifice. He prays for Israel. And it's in the middle of this sacrifice that God answers their faith with an awesome display of His power. And some other battles where the Lord is with Israel, sometimes He does something like you know, helping Israel to ambush their enemy. Uh, or sometimes He helps Israel to gradually overcome their enemy in an all-out battle, you know, they're fighting and then uh, Moses' hands were raised, right? Then they were winning, then his hands lowered, then they were losing. And so uh, God helps them in the active, you know, uh, sort of like makes them stronger, makes them more powerful. He wins the battle with them and through them. But this time, God basically wins the battle for them. He thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines. We don't know whether lightning accompanied the thunder, but I cannot find an image of thunder without lightning because you can't take a photo of sound. But regardless, when, when something comes from the sky during that time, it's always equated with the gods, right? And this thunder was so loud that it threw them into a panic. Now, this coming Wednesday is the ninth day of the Chinese New Year. And you know what that means for Penangites, right? No need to sleep, right? I remember back when I was uh, staying in a condo in Falim, it sounded, I, I, I think the next day I, I, I was trying to sleep early so that the next day I wake up for something. I remember going to bed and then at 11.30, all hell broke loose. Uh, it sounded like somebody had hung the biggest firecrackers in the world right outside my window, okay? And I think they probably did because uh, I was facing a field. Uh, and so, I've never been in a military. I've never been in a military by that moment from 11.30 p.m. to 2 a.m. I had a taste of what modern warfare sounds like. Now, imagine you are the Philistines and you had the largest, what sounds like the largest firecrackers and fireworks exploding around you within your ranks, not just shaking you to the core, but spooking your horses and throwing you off. And so, in all this chaos, they were routed. For those of you unfamiliar with this term, uh, routing, not the computer networking one, okay, not the Unify one, but uh, routing is a process in battle when the enemy is uh, making a panicked, disorganized, disorderly retreat. Okay, so usually it means that the army is disbanded, is scattered, the enemy are fleeing a losing battle, every man for themselves. It's not an organized, okay, we retreat for another day. It's a, ah, chawa, okay, that kind, that's routing. And so the Israelites had pushed them to a point, uh, sorry, God had, had uh, pushed them to a point where they were so panicked that they were routed, and the Israelites pursued the retreating Philistines and cut them down all the way to another village, which is over 5 km away from Mizpah. So you can see that, uh, Bethkar, that's a little over 5 km. So you imagine 
just running and chopping down people for 5km. Okay, that's, that's what the Israelites were doing. And so, just picture the scene at Mizpah. All of Israel is assembled. Philistines coming to crush them. Suddenly surrounded by thunder. So loud that they break ranks. They start fleeing. They're beaten back over 5km by the Israelites. No one could have mistaken that what was happening was not God at work. Okay? Only God could have been at work for Israel. And so Israel's success at verse 11 of pursuing their enemies is preceded by something that only God could have done in verse 10 where he uh, throws the army into chaos. In other words, God was the one who won the battle. The Israelites just did the cleaning up. Okay, but God was the one who won the battle. And this isn't just God saving the Israelites from another massacre by the Philistines. He's displaying his mighty power to both parties. He's proving his faithfulness while he's at it. They don't just win this battle, uh, if you can call it a battle, since it was probably a one-sided thing, uh, one-sided slaughter. Uh, but they were released from Philistine oppression at this point that had been going on for decades. And so this is the turning point for them. And so friends, are there areas in your life where you need God's mighty power to overcome? Areas where you feel fearful or perhaps areas where you feel despairing because you've been experiencing defeat in those areas for years, maybe even decades. Areas where you feel like you're under oppression for decades. If there are, may I suggest it starts with repentance, turning back to the Lord. It starts with repentance, but it's proven in persevering in faith, no matter what the circumstances. It's proven in trusting in the Lord in the midst of your trials. Let's reflect on our second question. Where in your life do you need God's power right now? And for the kids, how do you need God's help the most? Okay, two minutes.
Okay, let's move on to my last point. After the defeat of the Philistines, a monument was set up to remember how God helped the Israelites. And this is a stone called Ebenezer. And Ebenezer means stone of help. Now, the practice of setting up stones to commemorate significant events and encounters with God is plentiful throughout the Old Testament. It's all over the place. It happens when Jacob uh, has this dream at Luz, which becomes known as Bethel, right? And there God uh, reveals his covenant promise to him through that dream. And so he sets up a stone, uh, I think a pillar, uh, in, in response to... And it, it happens after the covenant is confirmed at Sinai, another stone is set up. It happens after the crossing of the Jordan River, the miraculous crossing, another uh, bunch of stones are set up. And sometimes they were, these were single large stones, other times there are a pillar of stones, probably flat stones that are stacked on top of each other. Now, why set up stones? Right? It's a very weird thing for us to, to do today. Well, what do we do today when there are significant events in our lives? We take pictures, right? Or, or maybe videos, or maybe if we are a large enough organization, we might commission a statue or, or a plaque. And why do we do all these things? Two reasons. One, we want to look back at that occasion. We want to remember it. That when we look at this picture, when we look at this statue, we look at this plaque, we are reminded of that thing, that event. Two, we want others to know of that occasion. And that's why we pass around photos, uh, we share them on social media, you know, we, we put the, the statue in a very prominent place, a public park, so others can see and know what that event is about. Well, back then, no cameras, uh, getting skilled labor to make large statues or engraved stones probably requires lots of money, craftsmen, tools that are not available. And so at that point when you encounter God, you don't have time to run off and, hey, hey, build a statue for me here. Uh, so <laughs> instantly, you take what is around you and you make a memorial. And so a stack of stones or a large stone standing on its own, probably at an unusual angle, these serve as markers for something. And there will be stones that are big enough to be unaffected by weather, so rain, wind. Uh, they will remain there for people to see. And so when the people who, who set up these stones went back to that place, they saw those stones, they would be reminded of the thing that happened, the reason why those stones were set up. And so word would also probably spread in that area as to why that stone is there or that bunch of stones is there what it signifies. And so you can imagine in a village, uh, you, you, somebody comes across you and says, hey, do you notice uh, that day I went near the well and there's this huge stone that has been set up? What does it mean? Oh, I heard the blacksmith telling me, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So uh, those stones would become almost like beacons for that event to remind people of what had happened. And so that brings us to this stone called Ebenezer, which is meant to remind Israel that thus far, the Lord has helped us. Now, if the name Ebenezer sounds familiar, 
not because of Ebenezer Scrooge uh, from the Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens, but it, it might sound familiar because we just came across this name two weeks ago when Brother Gamliang preached on Israel's defeat, the capture of the ark. You see, Ebenezer is the place where Israel tried to force God's hand into helping them. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And they brought the ark, trying to win the battle against the Philistines. It resulted in their darkest day, the slaughter of 30,000 and the capture of the ark. That was at Ebenezer. Uh, although the place is, is called Ebenezer, uh, only named Ebenezer in today's passage, by the time 1 Samuel is written, you know, they would have already known this place by that name. And so Ebenezer is not just a reminder of God's victory. It's also a reminder of Israel's defeat. One of the major themes of Israel's journey through the wilderness is to remember. To remember what things were like in Egypt, to remember what God had done to deliver them, to remember how God led them through the wilderness and sustained them. And it's precisely because Israel forgot the Lord that the events of the book of Judges plays out like how it does. And so Ebenezer is set up to remind people. Now, why do we need to remember? We remember because we want to learn from the past and apply the lessons for the future. Samuel names the stone Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And so this means there's plenty more room for the Lord to continue helping them down the road. At the start of my sharing today, I mentioned how I wasted almost two hours and half a tank of petrol because I made that wrong turn onto the MBX highway. I'm sad to tell you that I made that same mistake about three more times. I did not remember. <laughs> and so I did not learn the lesson until the fourth time it happened. And I tell you, the fourth time that I took the wrong turn and I realized what, what highway I was on, I just screamed in my car for about a minute. I went, ah, no, for about a minute while I drove because I still had another 59 minutes before I can U-turn. And so I, I remembered it so well. Needless to say, I'm not going to make the same mistake again okay and so for the israelites remembering would help them to remember exactly who is responsible for their victories which battles they should be fighting it would reinforce their faith for the battles to come learning all these lessons for their future we also remember to keep everything in perspective uh, as human beings who only live for less than, a less than a century, so under 100 years, we tend to be very short-sighted. Yet, our God is God of the ages. He is an all-knowing, unchanging, eternal God. I just returned from KL, right? And on the last day that I was leaving, I was staying at my sister's place. I was leaving my sister's place. My eight-year-old niece, she loves my wife because, well, my wife... Um, it's very lovable, yeah? And so, uh, my niece wanted to follow us back all the way to Penang, okay? And so, while we were packing, we were loading, uh, we were getting the dogs, we brought our dogs. And so, we were almost fully packed. We noticed that there was something smuggled in the back seat. 
and she had climbed into the back seat, put on her safety belt, and she was just waiting uh, to come back with us to Penang. Uh, very cute. <laughs> Super flattering for my wife. But when we told her cannot, uh, she couldn't understand. And so she, she, she did get very upset uh, why she couldn't come and stay with us. Why she, in her words, why she can't come and live with us <laughs> in a totally different state four hours away. And that's because she could only focus on what she wanted then and there. And she's only eight years old. And so that then and there is a very big slice of her entire existence. And so as adults with a bit more experience and insight, we can see how things would unfold if she really did come with us. She'd start missing her parents, she'd miss school. Uh, my wife would need to go to work for most of the day. All things she didn't consider, we needed to explain these things. Now, often we are like that, that when it comes to God, we can't really see beyond our immediate difficulties. And we don't trust God who is eternally wiser. So we remember to keep in perspective who God is. In the Israelites' case, He is a God who helps. We remember to keep in perspective who we are. In the Israelites' case, they were a people who were helpless without God. It's our defeats that remind us of our need to depend on God. And lastly, we remember to be thankful. The Israelites had so much to be thankful for every time they saw the Ebenezer Stone, an end to their oppression for many, many, many decades. But their temporary victory for the Israelites at that point pales in comparison to the eternal victory that we have over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And He is our Ebenezer. And so He is something, someone to always remember. So very quickly, what are some practical ways we can remember God who helps us? Firstly, because Jesus and what he did on the cross is central to who we are, what we do, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, okay? That's what we'll be doing later. And so the Holy Communion is all about remembering Jesus, what he's done for us, being thankful. Secondly, we can set up uh, spiritual markers in a spiritual journal. You know, write down your encounters with God, His promises, His faithfulness, His activity around you. Remember what God is doing in your life. Write it down. And lastly, we can testify and share with others what God has done for you. I'm a very forgetful person by nature, and so many times I meet someone new, I totally forget them shortly after. Uh, if that's you and I've met you before and I don't remember your name, <laughs> I don't remember meeting you, I'm so sorry. Don't take it personally. It's not, it's not that you have a forgettable face. It's because I have a forgettable eye. I don't know. Forgettable brain. Um, but one of the things I try, to, uh, I try to do to combat this is let's say I meet someone new in church. Immediately after, I'll talk to my wife about that person and I'll tell, I'll tell my wife everything I know about that person because talking about it helps me to remember. It helps to build those synapses or whatever. And so, talk about who God is to you, what He's done for you, 
because the world can always benefit from more testimonies of God's goodness and mercy. Our last question for today. What is one thing you can do to better remember the Lord? And for the kids, what helps you to remember God every day? Two minutes. In conclusion, I'd like you to know that repentance brings moments to remember the Lord will never fail us whenever we turn back to Him with all our hearts. Be faithful to the Lord throughout everything. Persevere in trusting Him through all the fears and anxieties. And do remember the Lord. Remember who He is. Remember what He's done for you. Be thankful. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.